0: Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech podcast. If you have anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching "Funding MedTech." on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Funding MedTech is our newest podcast that is a spin-off of our MedTech Money podcast series. Both Funding MedTech and MedTech Money can be found on the same podcast channel, so just search Funding MedTech and you'll see all the episodes there. Funding MedTech is an interview-style podcast focused on exploring ways to fund MedTech innovation. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Valentium. Valentium is a contract design and manufacturing firm specializing in the end-to-end development, production, and post-market support of diagnostic and therapeutic active medical devices, especially active implantables and other Class 3 medical devices. Valentium's core competencies include electrical engineering and design, mechanical engineering and design, embedded software, software as a medical device, mobile apps, CGMP contract manufacturing, embedded cybersecurity, OT cybersecurity, systems engineering, human factors and usability, and automated test systems. With customers all over the world, Valentium works with clients in every stage and situation, ranging from startups seeking funding to established Fortune 100 companies. Visit valentium.com to explore your next step in medical device development. In this episode, Christopher Gates at Valentium and I discuss embedded cybersecurity for medical devices, the importance of addressing cybersecurity early, hackers, and so much more. So, without further ado, my discussion with Christopher Gates. Christopher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. So, uh, Christopher, a background into uh, yourself, who you are, your experience in the med tech space, or even uh, in in adjacent areas, and then um, what you're currently doing. Well,
1: um, my name is Christopher Gates. I'm the Director of Product Security at Valentium. I've been with Valentium for seven years now. I was brought in to create the uh, medical device uh, security division and team inside the organization, which we've done. And we now have a good team to work with our clients. I guess I should say, Valentium is a product development consultancy company. We do everything you need to take your medical device from concept into production, including production, and anything in between. And we're puzzle pieces. So we drop in if you need um, production testers or a mobile app or cybersecurity, we can drop in and, and work with you. Or if you need the whole raft of services, we do that too. And we do a lot of implantables, which are the highest level of concern medical devices so we have no trouble with that at all so before that getting started uh i am a hacker uh and i've been that way my entire life literally as a kid uh i would you know reverse engineer things and tear things apart which was a joy for my parents uh and uh and then it oh yeah they they love that it's like because i was good at the tear down i wasn't good at the reassembling okay and uh, so it's like, that was always, it's like, great. Um, and then I was in elementary school and, you know, they had like ball monitors and hall monitors, you know, give kids some responsibility and like, well, they had a bike monitor nobody liked that because you'd sit out by the bike racks. I loved it. Why? I always volunteered because there's a whole bunch of locks there, combo locks, warded locks, pin locks. And one of the hallmarks of hackers are we love to pick locks. Okay. So I'd sit out there and open up all the locks, and then I'd close them back up again. And uh, you know, it's and you wonder what does a kid that age get lock picking tools? Turns out, welding rod pounded on a rock with a hammer, a flat, and then files so makes good rakes and picks and turning keys. And it's like so, you know, I'd find welding rod as a kid and do that kind of stuff and put it together. the 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 lesson there is never discount a precocious kid who has lots of spare time on his hands. Uh, he, he can be your worst nightmare as a defender. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, all through my career, and I've been creating medical equipment for 51 years. Now, I started when I was 15, so that gives you an idea. Um, I was the kid walking in, coding and assembly code uh, for these medical devices that I was working on, and. Occasionally during my day job, security interjected itself, like trying to protect intellectual property on a product, or you had a durable goods and a consumable good, and I had to protect that consumable so that it wouldn't be reused or cloned by somebody else. So it occasionally intersected between the two of them, and I hacked into things all during my careers as I was going along. Um, I mean, I was in what used to be called the ARPANET, uh, it kind of caught on. It's a little thing called the internet now. But originally it was the ARPA ARPA network, and it was tied into all universities. And it was originally intended to survive nuclear attacks, and you could launch nuclear missiles over it. So so I was hacking into everything on that. Uh, Bear in mind, these were the days of 300 bits per second, 300 baud, acoustical coupled modems, printing terminals, KSR 33s, you know, teletype those things so we weren't doing anything fast but you didn't need to because there, there was basically no security on this which is kind of a frightening thought if you think about it um and so that was the good old days and all along that when I like I said we started working on medical devices it was how do I protect these sometimes they were uh, mitigations but not exactly strong cryptographic mitigations. It was like, this will confuse the heck out of them. And this is going to drive them nuts kind of medication. Not not cryptographically strong, but good at messing with your attackers. And so there was all this going on. And then finally, I was at a very large uh, medical device company helping them as a consultant work on their proprietary RF. And they were very publicly attacked. And this is in the diabetes division, by the way. Uh, And so it would take you about 30 seconds to figure out who that company is. And I wound up spending seven years there and helping them establish an entire cybersecurity program and because they didn't know initially how to handle this. And they were kind of running around like, what does this mean? What do they want? And I was like, well, I could show you and they're like, Well, oh, what do you mean? I like, well, you don't put it on the resume, but you know, uh, I'm a hacker and I do this. So it started an interesting path for me because as an engineer, you understand how these things work. I mean, I'll go to you know DEFCON or B-Sides or something, and hear somebody who's a security researchers talk about this. And goes, I don't know why I did this, but when I did X, Y, and Z, I got this result. And you go, oh, well, you didn't read the data sheet on that component. <laughs> As an engineer, you know exactly why I did that. And it's like, so it's this weird cross blending of hacker and engineer that allows you to look at the process of development of a new product and say, what do I need to do at each step? What does this look like? How do I create artifacts for it, for regulatory submission? How do I create artifacts so two years from now, when somebody else touches this device, they know what the heck they're supposed to be doing and what not to touch. How do you you do this in a manageable mode? So that's what I spent seven years at this company working on, is trying different approaches and techniques and making certain that any of the the tools and techniques and mitigations we used were good ones and practical, they have value. There are industries like the payment card industry, PCI, that have security standards that are check the box standards. They're a security theater. They, they really don't do anything, but they're an activity there. And so it's like, well, we followed this. Yeah, but you're still not secure. That's the, always the stuff I'm fighting against. I want anything we do in this to have value for the manufacturer, the, the hospital, the patient. Somebody needs to have value. So long journey, I'm now working with Valentium work with hundreds of companies helping them and get their products out to market. And uh, cybersecurity is still 10 years later an emergent field uh, that a lot of manufacturers have no idea they even need to do this. And so spend a lot of time educating the manufacturers on this and what they need. And the good part is, it used to be 100% of, we're trying to get our product to the market. Okay, help us where we just submitted to the FDA and they came back with two dozen cybersecurity questions, help us, right? We're getting less of that now. We're getting more of the, we know we need to implement cybersecurity as a business, how do we do that? Governance, uh, policies, procedures, roles, responsibilities, that kind of stuff. So that I see as maturity and progress and growth. This year that we're in is the single biggest year for medical device cybersecurity, huge impacts. Uh um, I hear a few months back, a couple of my friends, one from Medtronic, Chris Reed from Medtronic, uh, Ken Hoime from Boston Scientific. And I got together and did a podcast, video podcast from manufacturers to manufacturers going, you need to pay attention. <laughs> Things are changing fast here. And if you don't get ahead of this, you're going to be in a world of hurt with your current projects that you're working on. And that continues and will continue for the rest of this year. So lots of churn, lots of change. And we can dive into that here in a little bit later, but uh, it, it's it is a it is not business as usual, and you can't say, "Oh, I did this last year." Nope, it's a whole new game this year. So, and, and continue.
0: Yeah, we've covered cybersecurity on the podcast a, a handful of times, but but uh, most of the time it's at like a uh, uh, like IT cybersecurity. So so today we're focusing more on embedded cybersecurity. First of all. We've, we've had a few different podcast episodes, but it'd be good to go back and just define what is embedded um, uh, software. So
1: embedded software is an interesting term, and it can, it can span a couple of different implementations. Uh, another way that you'll hear it referred to is operational technology, or OT. And basically what we're talking about is there is a purpose-built device that has in it either purpose-built hardware, or a pc that's embedded in that and those are two radically different approaches that controls the operation of that device that device may be purely diagnostic and sense things in a patient or it can be sensing things and delivering things like radiation or chemicals or you know drugs into this patient or air into their lungs so all of these things are controlled in this environment now the difference between those two is if you're dealing with what's typically thought of as firmware, which is a form of software that is embedded usually close to the hardware. It's not like you're writing a C-sharp program and you're running it under Windows or you're, you're writing code that's being, you know, Go that's being run under Linux or something. It is usually real close to the hardware. It may have an operating system or a real-time operating system in it because it needs to control things or it may not. And you get devices that are hybrid. You get some of them that these days that would have, say, a Windows front end that controls the display, and then it talks to several other microcontrollers that actually do all the real-time operations. In other words, it's they're time critical, things that Windows couldn't begin or Linux couldn't begin to, to, to perform because of the timing constraints. So, such as controlling motors, opening valves, turning on switches, these kind of things, that are, may be measured in microseconds. So very tight time tolerances associated with this. Those devices are typically resource constrained. So a microcontroller can have things like not have all the performance capability, be much slower than an application program uh, CPU that you would find, say, in Android or something like that. And there can also be things out there that it may have extra capabilities like embedded cryptographic hardware. So instead of taking hundreds of milliseconds to perform an encryption operation or decryption, it's done in microseconds for you and with almost no code, you hand it off to the engine and it does it, gives you back the results. So there's all these different ways of looking at it and what your constraints are and what you have to do. When you're designing purpose-built hardware with your own firmware, you're in charge of everything, literally everything. How, what the hardware is that's on there, how the firmware is written, all that. If you've got an embedded PC sort of structure, then there are things you have to live with, All right. Well, I can't control this. The best I can do is harden the system, and that means disable or configure properly services offered by that platform, which is not very effective. In the case of Windows, for instance, if you look at STIGs, stigss uh, they're, they're the rules that you apply to harden Windows. There's over 6,000 of them. And I mean, it helps you do this, but is it rock solid after that? No, no, it's never going to be rock solid. None of the general purpose operating systems can ever be rock solid. It just can't. They weren't designed to be that way. If you're working in a purpose built system, yes, you can make it extremely secure.
0: Okay, so um, I guess going back, you know, so so for embedded cybersecurity, um, let's start with the FDA. and what, where, where do you go for, like, if I, if I'm having, I have embedded, I have embedded software in my medical device, you know, and, and I'm going to need to pass the cybersecurity test or, or, or get that stamp of approval from the FDA that this is safe and effective. Where is the, are there, like, we just talked about biocompatibility before the call, right? you have a standard iso 10993 i go there i can look at that that gives me some really good guidance there's also guidance documents from the fda but what are the standards guidance documents that that one would be pointed to to start to inform them on the embedded cybersecurity field
1: so the first question is is we're as a manufacturer do you intend to market this product If it's just the U.S., then the FDA is really your only concern. If you're going to hit the EU, then all of a sudden the MDRs come into play. If you're thinking Canada, then they have theirs. If you're thinking Australia, the TSAs, they have these different... TSGs, you have these different regulatory agencies, and they've not harmonized at all. (laughs) Why?
0: okay so that was that was gonna be my question christopher is is you know with 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 biocompatibility most major regulatory bodies recognize iso 10993 or some or most parts of it right um yeah yeah
1: yeah and then it's it's worse than that because where you really get into it they all started off stayed off with the same common goal they want to make the medical devices secure and make them safe the devil is in the details of what that means and how you get there and by far the leader in this is the FDA. They actually are doing an amazing job. They always have, actually, in what they're looking for. Uh, Suzanne Schwartz, Jessica Wilkerson, Matt Hazlitt, Afton Ross, the, the, the four top people at FDA on cybersecurity, they do a great job. I mean, especially considering they're influencing, four people influencing an entire industry, okay? That's pretty impressive what they do, quite honestly. And then you get into the downsides of working with the FDA. First off, they don't know how to write a document. And their documents take forever to get out, years. So by the time it reaches the public, all the references to other standards and stuff, they're all out of date. And so you're saying, okay. The other part is they're not engineers. They've learned a lot, they've learned a lot. But there's terminology that we use, for instance, like I remember back in the 2018 pre-market guidance, they used the word may. And I asked one of the folks that was then at the FDA who since left, I says, you mean this is optional? He goes, no. I said, you may have to do this. I said, hey, we view that ling- language to mean it's optional. If you mean that's not, that's a requirement, that's a shall. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. And it's like, yeah. So the other part of it is the FDA cannot point to a guidance document and say, follow this till it is finalized. So their process is they publish a draft. It goes over a month of period of review, and then at some point they incorporate changes and it's finalized. The last pre-market cybersecurity guidance that was finalized was in 2014. It was circulated in draft form in 2013. Do you think the last 10 years have changed a little bit? And and it was a terrible document, by the way. They basically said, make your devices secure and we like puppies and unicorns are cute and no discrete requirements of their expectations. This is what we expect to see from you. So they don't say things like run static analysis against your code, do fuzzing of the communications. They do not do pen testing, none of this, okay? And they're very vague. And it's like they thought it would be understood what they wanted to do and they weren't being prescriptive. Well, you have to be prescriptive. So the most recent draft guidance came out in April of 2022, 49 pages of love. It is a huge expansion in activities. It is, all you have to do is Google FDA cybersecurity. It'll take you to the page that lists all of the different guidances they have out there for cybersecurity. It's very easy to get. It's all free. You can download it. The uh, huge expansion in in the responsibilities, and you'll see things on there like, these are non-binding requirements. Well, as of the end of last year, and start enforcement in March of 29 of this year, it is now. The Congress mandated FDA is responsible for medical device cybersecurity. And they added it to section 524B of the Food and Drug and Cosmetic Act. They have legal authority to not only enforce it, but also define what that means and what that looks like, including override whatever they put into the law, which is kind of interesting. So it's like here, it's your nightmare, FDA, you get to define it. So we're in this strange place right now where The FDA is working to what was written by Congress as requirements, but we know that's nothing compared to what they put in their guidance in 2022. So we're waiting for that guidance to be finalized around September of this year. They say September, we'll see, which is really, really, really fast for the FDA, by the way, 18 months. That means they're not changing a lot from the April guidance. when that's finalized, then all of a sudden, that's going to be the standard they're working to. And, you know, it's been 10 years. I mean, God, we need it. Okay. People are now beginning to come to the realization, hang on. <laughs> I can't just ignore this. I mean, it used to be we'd engage with clients and work with them. And that we, we were never budgeted for Because we were doing thirty dollars to $60,000 engagements for cybersecurity with them. And they would, you know, find the coins in the seat cushions somewhere. And it wasn't really worth budgeting for Now, with all the added things we're doing, we're somewhere 150 to 200,000, 220,000 for a typical engagement because of all the added activities and artifacts you create. So now you actually have to think about this and design it into your development budget and plan that this needs to occur. The other interesting thing about the April 2022 guidance is not only are all these extra things being done, which are all good, uh, they also are talking about sort of meta material behind it, like justifications. Uh, you're doing threat modeling for your assets. You're doing threat modeling for supply chain, threat modeling for rolling out a firmware update to the field. Justify the different methods and, and algorithms you use to do this. When you're doing testing for security testing, make certain there's independence and how are these people trained in cybersecurity. That's a big change. You now have to justify those kind of things. You can't just say, oh, yeah, Paul over here, who's an intern, uh, he, he did the penetration testing. He looked at him and went, I don't know what to do, so it must be secured, right? Not going to happen. You now have to show some form of credentials and justification for why those people are, are qualified to do that operation. So those are some uh, metrics are starting to creep in, too, of how long did it take you to roll out an update? All those kind of things. Average density of vulnerabilities known inside of a product. Software Bill of Materials, of course, I mean, that's a given these days by everybody. Uh, So all of this is changing rapidly. And starting October 1st, they're going to reject your pre-market submissions. They're called 510Ks uh, before within five days, if you don't have all of these artifacts. Right now, they're still working with you this next month. And the reviewer will say, well, you don't have all the stuff we want for cybersecurity you have 180 days to add these or else we're going to terminate your submission, right? Starting October 1st, you're you're not, don't, this is the end of the friendly period, quote unquote, you get, you submit your submission, you don't have this five days later, you get a rejection notice and say you didn't have XYZ for cybersecurity in here, or, or really anything refuse to accept Hazard analysis plan, development plan, all sorts of stuff. They're non-security related as well too. Biocompatibility is a good example of that. Things they are they're left out of that submission that needs to be in there. They've just now added cybersecurity. And then in September, that list is going to grow wildly larger, close to 30 items that need to now be addressed inside of there. So as I onboard new clients, I was doing this yesterday, I'm shooting to where the puck's going to be, okay? Because there's no point in doing what they're saying and doing today. By law, they can't say use that draft guidance. All they can say is use that ten-year-old guidance. But come September, if your time frame is you're going to be submitting after that, then you need to know that's okay. I need to get at least close to what's going to happen in September, and that means I'm following the April 2020. Wow. Guidance document. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Lots of, big, lots, of change- lots, lots of big of changes. changes. Lots of changes. Um,
0: Okay, so so with, with the embedded cybersecurity, there is the FDA piece of this as well, um, but then there's also the actual um, deployment of the product to the market, and you know how hospitals are going to evaluate cybersecurity, how your product may or may not interact with their own um, cybersecurity policies, and and that for people who haven't been through it. Can be difficult and i think i've talked about on the podcast before but um this is something that's hot at hospitals as well right um they're bringing in a lot of different products into it and so i'm curious on um that aspect as as well or what your interactions
1: have been there so that's a really interesting topic um we always, as manufacturers, refer to hospitals, we call them HDOs, health delivery organizations, hospitals, sure. clinics, doctors' offices. Yep. It's inclusive of all of those. So we talk we talk about HDOs as if they're this monolithic thing. All HDOs are exactly the same. They're not. Well, they're all. not. Okay. And it's a fundamental mistake that we make. So you have somebody like Mayo Clinic, okay, who does everything right. I mean Tim Walsh and Crowd there top of the line. They have last I checked over 300 penetration testers there. Nothing gets into their system that they wow. thoroughly reviewed. Yeah. Right? If something's updated, it's thoroughly re-reviewed again. I mean, they, they do it right. It's like, okay, you guys are perfection. Then there's this hospital in Ohio that I will not name that the guy who sets up their IT infrastructure that's connected to all the medical devices also mows their lawn. Okay, How, do you think they have penetration testing going on? They don't even know what that is. Any qualification tests? No. Any qualification test after a device has been updated in there? No. Are there even any firewalls? Maybe, maybe not. Do they open ports to everything? Sure, why not? And you see these organizations, and I should say and there's everything in between. And you see these organizations and you say, well, you know, we're poor, we can't afford to do it right well, then get ready to shut down because eventually somebody's going to drop ransomware on you and then you're done. If you can't pay up front to do it correctly, then you probably can't pay ransomware if that's really the case. Although, once again, it's amazing how they find coins right. in the cushions when ransomware hits. It's like yeah. Hollywood Presbyterian is a lovely example of that, one of the old ones, where it's like, oh, we can't pay, we're going to delay for a week, and then, oh, wait a minute, here's the money. Um, so it's a pay now or pay a lot more later kind of program for these Uh, cash-starved, quote-unquote, hospitals. Uh, So there's good ones out there. There really are. But then there's a lot of them that just don't do it. And also, do some of the stupidest things. Uh, There's a a public-private partnership between industry, and that's HDOs and manufacturers. And it's all run through the Department of Homeland Security, through an organization called HISAC. Health ISAC is what it stands for. Great organization, it, it it coordinates everybody. It coordinates the government, it coordinates our customers, it coordinates the manufacturers all together. And I remember here, it wasn't that long ago, one of, them, one of the uh, HDO representatives came out and said, we just bought a bunch of these ventilators and uh, we want to know, uh, are they secure? It's like, that's not the time to be asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> Before, during your purchasing, you know, have a few conversations with the different candidate manufacturers and say, hey, how can you prove to me that you're secure? And what does that commitment look like? There is a, a part of that group through Department of Homeland Security is the Health Sector Coordinating Council, and we I'm part of the group. And um, this is something I do. I'm on a lot of regulatory groups, and uh, guidance groups going forward. So uh, we look five years out and decide what's needed for our industry. And then start coming up with position papers these aren't binding for anybody but they give you help if you're doing that one of those is the model contract language which is if you're a hospital and you want to write a contract for a manufacturer to supply your goods what do you need for cybersecurity? there? because they literally don't know and certainly any lawyers drafting that contract don't know so there are 45 terms that we hammered out over about a two and a half year period to say, these are the things you should include in your contract, like ongoing levels of support, like updates, like proof of how you did secure development, like all these things, this is free. You go out, you download these documents and you start using them, okay? They immediately have payoffs for everybody. And so it's it's really great. It also emphasizes the best manufacturers out there, which means they're making more money, which means they're going to be more prevalent in the marketplace with more secure devices. So, if you hang on to those thirty-year-old devices as a hospital, and then complain that you got hacked by ransomware, well, that was your mm. choice. <laughs> you know, 30, 30 years ago, right. thirty years right. ago, we didn't do anything. I I literally, I literally, the other day, I had a client that came to me with a product. They showed me this, and they had a problem with it. That I'm not going to talk about. I'm not going to tell what kind of a product it was, but. It was, as I looked at it, they had changed the front panel on it, which is why I didn't recognize it, but I had created it 27 years ago. Oh my gosh. And they were still selling it. And I, I said, my suggestion to you is in this thing now. Okay. Uh, I'm surprised you can still get components for it. And this is very common in manufacturers is to take an old design and keep mm-hmm. spinning it and adding things on it. Right. And you think that's secure? No, secure. Mm-hmm. it's not. It's not when I work with clients now and they come on, this one, I was just mentioning yesterday that I'm onboarding. I said, okay, we're have a phased rollout of this product. What's phase one look like? What does the ultimate phase N look like? Yeah. Okay. Cause we're going to design so that we're compatible with N, whatever that is, but then we're going to make certain we implement and everything's put in place for phase one. If you don't do it that way, phase N will always be insecure. Always, you just—it doesn't just accidentally happen. You have to design in cybersecurity.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it wasn't that the issue. This isn't med tech related, but I, I think this was the issue with um, Boeing at some point. Was they took their old base model and just tried to slam more and more stuff into it, um, and this became the issue. Was that? It was the same design and they just kept adding newer components but at some point that original design was just out of whack and
1: and somewhere there's an engineer who used to work at boeing who created version one of that that somebody's going oh my god no they didn't do that (laughs) don't touch that don't they know okay don't you know and it's like Yeah. yeah um that tribal knowledge gets lost
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: and it's like no i've seen and and aerospace is horrible i saw one company that uh, years ago before i joined valentium i was working on a system that wasn't medical and uh it was more like it was a seat controller for an aerospace firm for commercial airlines it it basically was a highly reconfigurable robot it was amazing what we wound up doing anyway it was purchased by this other larger company, and they had been working on a braking system for commercial aircraft for over twenty-five years. Wow! And I'm like, <laughs> "What? <laughs> yeah, it's really hard for us because these microcontrollers—we've gone through uh, two end-of-life scenarios on the microcontrollers we were using." It's like, "Well, yeah. <laughs> How about here's a thought: you get it done inside of that period, you know." Um, that that's an industry that moves incredibly slowly Yeah, and they don't do it out of a, you know, caution of safety and all that they do it because they're just sort of more abundant and tied up in themselves. Yeah. Uh, It's, it's it's really a very depressing environment, by the way, if you've ever been in one of those office buildings, it's kind of like, well, I get why people don't want to work here. Right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's like, yeah. yeah, Ooh. Ooh. So, so Christopher, uh, Kind of pausing on the cybersecurity questions or i guess it's still cybersecurity related you mentioned you know being a hacker what does it mean to be a hacker and that's a very general question right but it just it feels as if if you're not connected to the industry you're like well what's a hacker that must be bad uh, i've talked to a few other people who have done hacking as well and it really, it's it to me. It just sounds like you're, honestly, you're you're just trying to say, hey, before we put this out into the world, um, here's all the flaws in your original. Let me see if I can break this thing, right?
1: Well, yes, it runs all of that. And once again, this is not one of those monolithic terms that there's a spectrum inside of. Okay, uh, and as one of the things I tell clients is, if nobody else ever hacks you guaranteed who will hack you is your competitors because they're going to go in and try to pull out your intellectual property and see if there's anything of any value. Mm-hmm. How do I know this? Done it many times, many times, ongoing, guaranteed, guaranteed. You release something and they are say, oh, wait a minute. This, look, they have a little more accuracy in their algorithm. What did they do? do we want to know. So there's all these kinds of things that, that feed into it. Now, hackers can also be extremely malicious. Uh, there are some that I'm sure you've seen transcripts because we've all well, seen these of hackers that were putting ransomware into children's hospitals, right? And the, the whole dialogue of these DMS that were going through was basically F them, we don't care. And they were laughing about the fact that this is going to harm or kill children. Um, those are not nice people. Um, and those are people that any right thinking person would definitely pull the plug on if given the opportunity. And uh, so they so there's this large spectrum of difference, then you have security researchers, uh, that's, should be in your quotes, lots of different levels of those folks. These are the folks that, you know, go to B-Sides, Black Hat, DEFCON, RSA, those kind of shows and they're all contributing and they're all interesting. And in a lot of cases they would love to work with a manufacturer. Well, the problem is the manufacturer is never going to really honestly trust them all that much. If, if there's a relationship, it's always going to be at arm length. And part of this is due to the fact that they're not engineers. And while they might bring value in their perspective, because an engineer can be bench blind to his own vulnerabilities, it is, it, it's is—it's really, they're not going to be able to craft a mitigation or a solution to this. Can they find things that an engineer can't? Yeah. I mean, the difference between an engineer is an engineer will get hundreds or thousands of requirements for a device, what it how it performs. The way it performs, the battery life consumption, the power consumption, the user interface, the communications, all this has to be implemented by the engineer. A hacker, you have to bring all that together as an engineer. A hacker says, I've got this one thread. I'm going to follow this in. Oh, here's a Bluetooth low energy and there's no authentication. Oh, look, what's this exposed serial cord here? Oh, look, it's a shell. Let's do a reverse. I'll open up a, a boot, a, a U-boot shell on here and get in, okay? They think about one thing and follow it in. And if that doesn't work, they back out and follow another path in. So trying to put those two concepts into one brain at the same time is not possible. After all the decades of myself doing this, I still think of something as an engineer. And then I look at it from cybersecurity. It's two different hats. Go, okay, we're going to add these three features. Oh, and this introduces a vulnerability here. We're going to have to mitigate that somehow. And look at it. You, You cannot look at it the same way. This is the culture change you need to put into your organization. It is literally part of the training. In fact, I should mention this. Um, we offer, I created a training program. People can take it self-paced. And a part of this deals with how to change the culture in your organization for this. They have to think about it. I mean, there's never a better time than when you see a design engineer talk about adding something, and they go, well, what vulnerabilities does that open up? It's like, yes, that's the way to think about it, OK? And then you formalize that process, and it's a beautiful thing, and it works. It's literally slipstreamed right into normal development activities. It adds almost no time or cost to those activities, but it yields fantastic results at the end. If you waited, if you waited to the end of development to implement your user interface on any product, okay, what? How good would that that user interface be? It'd be terrible, right? All right? No, it's defined up front. Well, that's the same thing with cybersecurity. It starts day one of the project and you start thinking about all the use cases and what you need to secure and how you decompose it, typically via threat modeling. But so that's the kind of thing that really is important to go through. Uh, I mentioned the training, by the way, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about this. I offer a master class that's a week long student paced videos that you get a certificate. Why do you want this? Uh, remember, I mentioned that the uh, April twenty twenty-two guidance talks about the skill sets of uh, people doing testing internally, well, that's something you can then offer is here's the certificate they went through this training. And uh, I mean, I also wrote, wrote, co-wrote the first book on medical device cybersecurity. Uh, we're working on the second edition now, by the way, uh, Artec Publishing of London, it's one of their bestsellers. It was bestseller list for months and months on Amazon for technical books, won two cybersecurity book of the year awards in 2021. So a very popular book and it helps and it helps but a lot of people don't get it sitting down reading a book. Um, it's funny if I'm on board a client and they've got a bunch of post-it notes and they hold up my book with you know, the post-it notes. I know this engagement's going well, right? They read it. They flagged the, the relevant parts. This is going to go well. It always does. Well, the training is sort of a force feeding of that to you. And it goes through and says, here's everything you need to know from regulations to how to change the culture to uh, how to do cryptography. Most engineers don't know that. I've seen things where the FDA asked them, they came back and said, what kind of encryption did you use on that serial stream of data? And they went, a SHA-1. And it's like, that's like saying, you know, what vehicle, what what car do you drive to work? And you go, a a Boeing 727. Well, they're both vehicles, but one isn't a car, okay? Well, that's the same thing. A SHA is used for integrity checking. It's not encryption. Um, Instead, You would. You should have come back and said you know AES one hundred and twenty eight or RSA or something that would be encryption. So that's the kind of thing that we teach them as well. So they how to interact with the FDA, how to do this correctly, know what cryptographic tools to use to solve what problems, and all the uh, regulations, both domestic and international. And this came out of my work because you you can't hire our people. You can't hire people for that. So literally. I created an internal program for this to train hardware, firmware, software, systems engineers in this and put them in as cybersecurity experts. And then that the out, outgrowth of that is I made it yeah. public.
0: Yeah, this is great. Um, so so Christopher, uh, thanks for your time today. This has been wonderful. Um, so we have the book. The book was called what again? Medical Device Cybersecurity?
1: Yeah, I'll just hold it up here. Medical Device
0: Cybersecurity. Hold it up. There we go. Medi- medical device cybersecurity um, for engineers and manufacturers. Excellent. Uh, available yep. on Amazon. We'll, we'll include a link to it uh, because this is an audio-only pod- podcast, so people won't be able to see it, but I'll, I'll still include uh, a link to it. And then the um, – The other piece of this was the class uh, that you can take through Valentium, right? So I'm sure there's a Mm -hmm. link somewhere on Valentium's website I can point it to. Um,
1: Actually, I'll send you a link. Once we're done, I'll send you a link. It's a direct link into
0: it. Awesome. Excellent. And then uh, outside of that, Christopher, thanks so much for for doing this. Hang on for one minute. We'll chat offline. Uh, Sure. Thank
1: you very much.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I'll include a link to Valentium's website too. So there'll be four links in here. Christopher's LinkedIn, uh, we'll have um, uh, the website, we'll have the link to the class and we'll have a link to the book. Um, so if you're interested in those things, plenty of resources here. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks again, Christopher.
1: No problem. This is, if you're a manufacturer, this is an interesting time we're living in and it's gonna be interesting for the next few years. So get on top of this wave, it's moving fast.
0: Love it. The- Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.